0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, Dr. Craig debates Bill Cook on the topic, Is God a Delusion? For more, go to
1: ReasonableFaith.org. Thank you
2: very much, and good evening. Uh, let me begin by expressing my thanks to the sponsoring organizations for the invitation to participate in tonight's debate. This is our first visit to New Zealand, and my wife Jan and I have just been delighted at the beauty of your country, as well as the hospitality that you've shown to us. We have been overwhelmed by how friendly and warm uh, everyone is, and it's just been uh, a good experience. I'm also grateful for uh, Bill Cook's willingness to join in tonight's debate, and it's my hope that our discussion this evening will be a real help to you in your own thinking about these important questions. Now, being technologically challenged myself, I'm going to be assisted by the talented and lovely Madeline Flanagan uh, in uh, showing a PowerPoint that is uh, connected with my opening speech. In asking the question, uh, is God a delusion, it's imperative right from the start that we define our terms clearly. The dictionary definition of a delusion is a false belief or opinion. Accordingly, in tonight's debate, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, that there's no good reason to think that belief in God is false. And second, that there are good reasons to think that belief in God is true. Consider then my first contention, that there's no good reason to think that belief in God is false. If uh, Bill Cook is to persuade us that belief in God is a delusion, then he must provide some reasons to think that belief in God is false. Now rather than attack straw men at this point, I'll just wait to hear Dr. Cook's arguments against God's existence, and then I'll respond to them in my next speech. But I simply note in passing that if he is to justify an affirmative answer to tonight's question, then he does owe us such arguments. So let's turn instead to my second main contention, that there are good reasons to think that God exists. In line with an increasing number of philosophers, I'm persuaded that there really are good reasons to think that God exists. Let me just sketch briefly some of these reasons. First, God is the best explanation of the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself why the universe exists? Why anything at all exists, instead of just nothing? Well, typically, atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. But there are good reasons, both philosophically and scientifically, to doubt that this is the case. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past seems absurd. Just think about it. If the universe never had a beginning, then the series of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, who was perhaps the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, wrote, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas, but are real the number of past events must be finite. And therefore the series of past events can't go back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being at the Big Bang. As the physicist PCW Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe as discussed in modern science is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Now of course, alternative theories have been crafted over the years to try to avoid this absolute beginning. But none of these theories has commended itself to the scientific community as more plausible than the Big Bang theory. In fact, in 2003, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin were able to prove that any universe which is, on average, in a state of cosmic expansion cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. Vilenkin pulls no punches, he writes, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. That problem was nicely captured by Anthony Kenney of Oxford University. He writes, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense, for such a conclusion is, in the words of philosopher of science, Bruno Konigscheider, in head-on collision with the most successful ontological commitment in the history of science, namely the metaphysical principle that out of nothing, nothing comes. So, why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. We can summarize our argument thus far as follows. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, as the cause of time and space, this being must be an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Moreover, it must be personal as well. Why? Because this cause must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either abstract objects, like numbers, or else an intelligent, unembodied mind. But abstract objects can't cause anything. And therefore, it follows that the cause of the universe is a transcendent personal mind. Number two, God is the best explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that the initial conditions of the Big Bang were fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a complexity and delicacy that literally defy human comprehension. This fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, uh, such as the gravitational constant. These constants are not determined by the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values of these constants. Secondly, in addition to these constants, there are certain arbitrary quantities, which are just put in as initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy in the early universe or the balance between matter and antimatter. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. Were these constants or quantities to be altered by even a hair's breadth, the life-permitting balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. For example, if the force of gravity or the atomic weak force were altered by as little as one part out of 10 to the 100th power, the universe would not have been life-permitting. Now, there are only three possible explanations of this extraordinary fine-tuning, either physical necessity, chance, or design. Now. It can't be due to physical necessity, because as we've seen, the constants and quantities are independent of the laws of nature. In fact, string theory predicts that there are 10 to the 500th power different possible universes compatible with nature's laws. So could the fine tuning be due to chance? Well, the problem with this alternative is that the odds against the fine tunings occurring by accident are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. The probability that all of the constants and quantities would fall by chance alone into the life-permitting range is vanishingly small. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe. So if the universe were the product of chance, the odds are overwhelming that the universe would be life-prohibiting. Hence, we may argue as follows. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, Therefore, it is due to design. And thus, the fine-tuning of the universe implies the existence of a designer of the cosmos. Number three, God is the best explanation of objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective values, I mean values that are valid and binding independently of whether anybody believes in them or not. Many theists and atheists alike concur that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective in this way. Michael Roos, a noted philosopher of science, explains, the position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction And any deeper meaning is illusory. Like Professor Ruse, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the herd morality evolved by homo sapiens on this planet is objective. On the atheistic view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially advantageous. And so in the course of human development, it's become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. But the problem is that objective values do exist. And deep down, I think we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape cruelty, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Roos himself admits in another context, the man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. Hence our argument can be summarized as follows. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, objective moral values do exist, but then it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore God exists. Number four, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus imply God's existence. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. Historians have reached a consensus that Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And his visible demonstrations of this fact He carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably say that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of historians today which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in the study of the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic, Gerhard Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Finally, fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. N.T. Wright, an eminent British New Testament scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body, or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore, it seems to me the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. And so we have a good inductive argument for the existence of God based on Jesus' resurrection. Number one, there are three established facts about Jesus, the empty tomb, post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' beliefs. Two, the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of these facts. Three, the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead entails that the God revealed by Jesus exists. And finally, four, therefore, the God revealed by Jesus exists. Finally, my last point, number five, God can be immediately known and experienced. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments simply by immediately experiencing This was the way people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, to them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, there's a danger that arguments for God's existence could actually distract your attention from God himself. If you are sincerely seeking God, then God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external proofs that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. So in conclusion, if Dr. Cook wants us to believe that God does not exist, he has to first tear down all of the five reasons that I presented, and then in their place, erect a case of his own to prove that God does not exist. And unless and until he does that, I think that belief in God is the more rational worldview.
1: It's a shame we're stuck with this very limiting either or moot. Of is God a delusion, which runs the risk of quickly becoming a he said, she said squabble that will achieve little beyond widening the gaps between people. And I suppose that the people who thought this topic up just assumed that the atheists would agree and declare that belief in God is indeed a delusion. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint, but that's not the case. I'm with the great atheist thinker Charles Bradlaugh, who said, The atheist does not say, there is no God. But, he says, I know not what you mean by God. I am without idea of God. The word God, to me, is a sound conveying no clear or distinct affirmation. In other words, the atheist has no reliable evidence... That one person's notion of God is any more sound than the next person's. What Bradlaugh understood, and what so much contemporary scholarship has since confirmed, is that God is a human invention. So rather than talk about God as a delusion, I prefer to use Lloyd Gearing's idea that belief in God is a barrier. New Zealand's most influential theologian has outlined a series of barriers that must be overcome before Christianity can hope to avoid what he has called the spiritual schizophrenia of living in a world with a set of beliefs derived from two millennia ago when the world was a very different and more primitive place. The barriers, Gearing mentions, are one, the false veil of sanctity and authority which has grown up around the bible two christianity's claim to be the absolute and final truth three persisting with discredited claims about the divinity of jesus and four failing to understand the nature of religious language and in particular the tendency to read scripture literally And the last barrier he speaks of is the traditional understanding of God as an objective being sitting up there in the sky somewhere. The sort of God that Dr. Craig has talked about. God, Gearing says, is an expressive term. It is not a descriptive one. Such an important point, that. What I'll be arguing tonight is that belief in the sort of God idea approved by Dr. Craig Acts as a barrier to making progress as a religious person. Now, it should be apparent that belief in God can act as a barrier. In religious extremism and terrorism, we see belief in God providing a justification for hatred. And in environmental matters, belief in God can, and often does, act as a barrier to the sort of ecological awareness upon which the survival of our planet depends. This is because of the damaging anthropocentric conceit that religious belief encourages. In Dr. Craig's words, in the absence of God, it is difficult to see any reason to think that human beings are special but maybe this presumption of being special is part of the problem. Another American Christian, Andrew Sandlin, not a religious extremist, writes, the creation of humanity was God's crowning achievement. The animals, while possessing in some cases high degrees of sensation and intelligence, were not designed for this unique, everlasting communion with God. Where do you start? Who the hell is a species do we think we are? Let's have a reality check here. We share with thousands of other species a hunk of rock, third one out from one undistinguished sun and one ordinary section of one galaxy in, for all we know it, one universe among others. We now understand that the universe is anywhere around 15 billion years old and is the home to countless number of stars somewhere in the billions. And in the history of this universe, human beings have occupied less than 000001 percent of it. In other words, for 99.9999% of the universe's history, human life did not exist. If humanity is God's crowning glory, why the need for so much time to elapse before putting the icing on the cake? (laughs) during which time 99% of all species that ever existed have been allowed to become extinct. Now answers to this question are straightforward if we think in evolutionary terms. But if we think in terms of of Christian apologetics, they make no sense at all. I am simply not prepared to accord to myself or the species of which I am a part the lofty place in the universe that Christian apologetics requires of me. The single most valuable lesson that atheism can teach us is the moral one of not wrapping ourselves up in our self-declared importance and magnificence. Atheism reminds us of our complete and total irrelevance to the cosmos, Facing the consequences of this irrelevance is what Spinoza had in mind when he spoke of subspecie eternitatis, or under the aspect of eternity. Under the aspect of an eternity that has no plan for us, doesn't care whether we get a car park, or a boob job, a promotion, or even true love or world peace. We can look at ourselves and others around us in a true spirit of humility. And with courage, we can make a life for ourselves and our loved ones and create our own meaning and our own purpose. And let us not suppose that this is a minority view, at odds with the religious majority of the world. When we examine the major belief systems of the world, we learn that belief in God is often not seen as being of central importance. The Asian traditions, which are philosophical ways of living, as much as they are religions, are more concerned with the elevation of the mind, with living in harmony with nature and with each other. At best, notions of God are seen as one way, among others, that this ideal can be realized. For most, notions of God are irrelevant, or, as I argue, a barrier to the elevation of the mind and living in harmony with nature. We should all know by now that believing something is no guarantee of behaving accordingly. Think of Graham Cable, former leader of the Christian Heritage Party, now serving nine years for the sexual exploitation of children. It's only the Judeo-Christian religions which place belief in God as central to their systems. But with this emphasis on belief in God has come its tragic corollary of making a fetish of the us versus them distinction. As century followed century, believers in God have murdered unbelievers and each other, all in the name of a supposedly perfect and all-loving God. Nowhere is the truth that God is a human invention better illustrated than in the Hebrew Bible, what rudely gets called the Old Testament. Because there we can see the idea of God evolving over time among the Hebrews as their political fortunes rose and fell. As one scholar put it, the Jewish God was, of course, originally a tribal deity. But eventually he came to be conceived as a universal spirit, initially superior to other deities. Subsequently he was proclaimed the only true God. What today gets called God began life as chieftain gods of the tribes of Abraham or Isaac and of Jacob before being amalgamated with the Midianite mountain gods known as Yahweh. Yahweh, as exodus 15.3 declares, was a warrior god and was taken up by the Hebrews for the purpose of ethnic cleansing of the original habitants of Palestine. This warrior god later developed into the royal god of the Hebrew people and as Psalm 97.9 puts it, For thou, Lord, art up high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. There's full recognition that other gods exist. All that's being said is that our God is the best God. It was not until after the Babylonian exile that Jews came to an exclusive, monotheistic understanding of God. And it was this monotheistic conception of God that the Christians took over and set to their own uses. And this idea of God, whose birth, adolescence, and development the Hebrew Bible so faithfully records, is the same God Dr. Craig expects us to believe was around in full working order at the beginning of time, overseeing the creation of 15 billion stars. I mean, how can this be true when the Bible itself tells a different story? Dr. Craig's cosmic creator notion of God is a later development in Jewish religious thought and runs counter to the story left in his own scripture. His view of God, then, acts as a barrier to a full understanding of the historical wealth of the Hebrew Bible. Neither should we assume that Dr. Craig's style of rationally proved God is uniquely representative of Christian opinion. Many leading theologians over the past century have accepted that God is not something that can be proved rationally. Hans Kung admitted that insofar as they seek to prove something, the proofs of God are meaningless. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, while incarcerated by the Nazis, God is teaching us that we, that we must live as men who can get along very well without him. Albert Schweitzer, who has been described as the 20th century's greatest Christian, was also clear that the only plausible God was an unknowable God, to be experienced as a mysterious will within myself. This insight was built on his understanding of the hopelessness of the attempt to find meaning of life within the meaning of the universe. The British theologian Don Cupid is even more explicit when he says... I still pray and love God, even though I fully acknowledge that no God actually
3: exists.
1: (laughs) Closer to home, this is what Dean Richard Randerson had in mind last year, when he declared himself agnostic as to the proofs of God. To seek proof of the existence of God in scientific terms is a category mistake, he wrote. He went on, much of the language of the Bible is to be read in categories of poetry and image, not as a scientific textbook. To treat scripture as an all-purpose manual, this is in every respect true, is to violate the second commandment, which exhorts people not to set up idols or worship. So not only has Dr. Craig thoroughly proved God a barrier to more humane versions of the God idea, some prominent theologians are now taking the next step of appreciating that belief in God is a barrier to true morality. Keith Ward asked whether one must believe in God in order to be truly moral. To think that, he said, would be to get the whole thing upside down. Belief in God is undertaking these practices if God bothers you, he says, forget God. And think of a way of adopting a way of self-formation which sees human life in the light of values that are of eternal worth. And Richard Holloway has written that the use of God in moral debate is so problematic as to, as to be worthless. It is better, he argues, to leave God out of the moral debate and find good human reasons for supporting the approach that we advocate. It's clear, then, that many reputable Christian scholars either agree that belief in God is not something that can be proved, or that the proof of God is unimportant or even detrimental in determining one's relationship to the God idea. In this context, Dr. Craig's labyrinth of proofs seems irrelevant. Rather than proving God, his rational edifice functions more as a gallows upon which nobler and more humane ideas of God die a slow death. Let us also remember that this is not a simple contest between the atheist and the theist. Dr. Craig is a 99.9% atheist. He denies the existence of every single god ever conceived except one. The God he believes in appears on page 341 of my Encyclopedia of Gods. He's a hardcore atheist, right up to page 340, and then again to the end of the book. But on page 341, he completely changes his mind and provides the deluge of argumentation that he has given us tonight. And Dr. Craig has no way of showing beyond merely asserting it that the God which appears on page 341 is the same as his creator God. Could it not just as easily be one of the other ones? And it should also be said that belief in God can act as a barrier to effective dialogue between people of different beliefs. Instead of looking at what divides us, as this moot does, wouldn't it be better to look more at what we have in common? The first and most obvious point that atheists and religious believers share is a common humanity. Now this might sound trite and obvious, but it's worth saying, not least because of the demonization of atheists that is now, in the United States at any rate, reaching dangerous levels. The Canadian philosopher Kai Nielsen, an atheist as it happens, has identified these moral truisms which are shared by atheists and religious believers alike. Listen to them: Truthfulness is a virtue. Promises should be kept. Integrity is something to be cultivated. Human well-being is desirable. Understanding one's situation in life is a good thing. Human suffering and pain are bad. Caring for others is good. Cooperation on fair terms is essential to a decent life. Mutual respect and recognition are essential for human flourishing. The care of children is morally obligatory. Nielsen adds that these moral truisms are our common heritage. Now, they're not enough in themselves, of course. What each of us then needs to do is rework these moral truisms into a coherent view of the world. And at this point, Christian and atheist may well diverge, But it's important to remember that with an effort we can actually arrive at some pretty important points in common. So to predicate everything on a dogmatic (coughs) belief in God is to throw up a barrier against human understanding and cooperation. Rather than putting barriers up, we should be taking them down. We should be working together to alleviating the sufferings of millions of human beings. Of infinitely more moral relevance to our contemporary situation in the New Testament are the Millennium Development Goals of the United Nations. As of 2005, someone died of starvation every 3.6 seconds. 115 million children received no education of any sort, and so on. In the face of this catalogue of suffering, all Dr. Craig can do is split philosophical hairs about whether the level of suffering is gratuitous. I quote him. We are not in a good position to assess with confidence the probability that God lacks morally sufficient reasons for permitting the sufferings of the world. In other words, a death from starvation every 3.6 seconds doesn't count against God because we can't be sure that there's a morally sufficient reason for permitting this to happen. Yeah? Dr. Craig's God is too busy worrying about the, to worry about the world's suffering, which he can't be sure is gratuitous. His God seems more worked up about what homosexuals do in the privacy of their own home, or to abstain from mar- sex before marriage, or worse still, that God is an American and is right behind President Bush's bloodletting in Iraq. <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of the Christian religion where its God has been portrayed in such mean-spirited and trivial terms. If that is the God I'm supposed to worship, then I remain proud to call myself an atheist. Is God a delusion? No more so than many other human-generated ideas. But Dr. Craig's version of the idea, I have argued, acts as a barrier to broader nobler renditions of this human idea. Albert Schweitzer seems closer to the mark when he said, only an infinitely small part of infinite being comes within my range. The rest of it passes me by like distant ships toward which I make signals they do not understand.
2: You'll remember in my opening speech, I said that I would defend two fundamental contentions tonight. The first of these was that there's no good reason to think that belief in God is false. Now, it's not clear to me after listening to Bill Cook whether he actually thinks that belief in God is (laughs) false. Uh, He redefined what it means to be an atheist. He says an atheist does not say that God does not exist, and therefore he's not claiming that God is a delusion. (coughs) But he is asserting that God is just an invention. Now that seems to me to be a difference without a difference. If he means that this is an invention to which there is no objective corresponding reality, then he is saying that belief in God is a delusion. That is to say a false belief. And indeed, this is the definition of what atheism is. Atheism is the claim that there is no God. Don't take my word for it. The Encyclopedia of Philosophy, a standard reference work in the field states that according to the most usual definition, an atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. So if uh, Bill Cook is going to defend atheism tonight, he is making a claim to know that God does not exist, and that requires justification. He says, but I don't even know what the word God means. Uh, It's meaningless. Well, for the purposes of tonight's debate, I will define the term God to mean a creator and designer of the universe who is the locus of moral value. There. Now, knowing what the word means, we can debate whether there is such a being. And I've offered several arguments to suggest that there is. Bill Cook says, but the word God is just an expressive term, not as I'm using it. I'm using it to say that it means a creator and designer of the universe who is the locus of moral value. And the question is whether there is such a thing. He says, but you yourself, Craig, are an atheist. Uh, I only deny one more God than you do. I think that's uh, simply uh, a misuse of terms. An atheist is a person who makes the universal judgment there is no God. A person who believes that there is a creator and designer of the universe who is to be worshipped, who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, is clearly in no sense of the term an atheist. So I'm not an atheist in any sense of the the word. I believe that God exists, that there is a God, and uh, I'm willing to defend it tonight. Now, he finally says, but belief in God can have negative consequences. It can be a barrier and so forth. This is simply irrelevant to the truth of the statement that God exists. And so I'm not going to be drawn into a debate tonight over the social impact of religion on society and things of that sort, because all of this is irrelevant to the truth of the statement, God exists or God does not exist. Dr. Cook does suggest something of an argument for atheism by saying that human beings are small and insignificant compared to the universe. So much time has elapsed before we came on the scene. And this is supposed to be some sort of an argument, I guess, for atheism. Uh, Now, what's odd about this is notice that this really underlines the truth of the first premise of my moral argument, that if there is no God, then objective moral values do not exist. Human beings are nothing uh, on the atheistic view. He seems to admit it. But from my perspective as a theist, I think size is absolutely no indication of moral value. Why does something have to be big? in order to even be more morally valuable. I see no reason to think that size is indicative of moral value. And that's for the amount of time that's elapsed. Time is of absolutely no consequence to a being with unlimited resources and time such as God is. So if God has chosen to create the world through a lengthy process of evolutionary development, that's his prerogative. And so I think there's no argument against God's existence. He attacks the... Evolution of Hebrew monotheism as something that has evolved, I, I don't think that's true. The very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The concept of Hebrew monotheism is the concept of a God who has created all that there is outside himself. But in any case, the point is irrelevant because it commits what philosophers call the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy is trying to invalidate a view by showing how a person came to hold that view. So for example, saying the only reason you believe in democracy is because you were born in the West, in a Western society. That doesn't mean your belief in democracy is false. Similarly, even if Hebrew monotheism is the process of an evolutionary development, that doesn't prove that Hebrew monotheism is false. Indeed, I've given several good arguments to think that it is true. The final argument I see that has been presented was some gesture toward uh, the problem of suffering, that uh, if God exists, then uh, we ought not to think that there should be so much suffering in the world. And the point from the quotation that he read for me is simply this, that the atheist, if he thinks this is a disproof of God's existence, has assumed a burden of proof, which I think is simply too heavy for him to bear. He has to show that it's improbable that God could have morally adequate reasons for permitting the evil and suffering in the world. Now, if Dr. Cook is willing to defend that, I'm interested to hear his argument. Give me the argument that would show that it's impossible that God could have morally adequate reasons for permitting the world's suffering. In fact, this argument has been largely abandoned, at least in its logical form, by philosophers today. Peter Van Inwagen, a prominent uh, American philosopher writes, it used to be held that evil was incompatible with the existence of God, that no possible world contained both God and evil. So far as I am able to tell, this thesis is no longer defended. So again, if Dr. Cook wants to give us an argument for this, go ahead. But until he does so, merely gesturing in that direction doesn't show that God does not exist. So in short, I don't think we've heard any good reasons tonight to think that belief in God is false. Now, have we heard good reasons to think that belief in God is true? Well, I offered five such reasons. Dr. Cook says that Hans Kuhn and Don Cupid and Schweitzer are unconvinced by arguments for the existence of God. Well, if this is to be more than just an appeal to authority, he needs to explain to us why they would be unconvinced by the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments. The fact is that since the late 1960s, there has been a revolution in Anglophone philosophy and a renaissance of interest in arguments for the existence of God, such that a good many philosophers today believe that there are quite good reasons to think that God exists, such as I described this evening. One of those would be the argument from the origin of the universe. Remember, it goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist. We have philosophical and scientific evidence for that premise. From that, it follows that there must be a transcendent immaterial cause of the origin of the universe. And Dr. Cook has yet to respond to that argument. The second argument I offered was the design argument based on the fine tuning of the universe for intelligent life. The fine tuning is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. And of those three alternatives, the most plausible alternative is design. Dr. Cook has yet to respond to that argument. What about the moral argument? Remember, the first premise was that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. And here, I think Dr. Cook grants the point. He says human beings are just insignificant. Uh, It's illusory to think that we're of some sort of importance in the grand scheme of things. Uh, He seems to think that um, moral values are just uh, products of human evolution. And this is the real question before us, not whether or not we can agree upon certain moral values to guide our lives by. The crucial question is, what is their foundation? Paul Kurtz is a humanist philosopher. And he writes that the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns their ontological foundation, that is, their foundation in reality. He says, if they are neither derived from God, nor anchored in some transcendent ground, are they purely ephemeral? And I think we both agree that in the absence of God, the answer is yes, they are purely ephemeral. As Richard Dawkins has written, there is a bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. So on an atheistic view, it seems very plausible to me that the moral values evolved by homo sapiens on this planet are not objective. Massimo Pigliucci is an evolutionary biologist. He agrees, he writes as follows, there is no such thing as objective morality. Morality in human cultures has evolved, and what is moral for you might not be moral for the guy next door, and certainly is not moral for the guy across the ocean. And what makes you think that your personal morality is the one, and everyone else is wrong? He says, what we call homicide or rape or even infanticide is very, very common among different types of animals. Lions, for example, commit infanticide on a regular basis. Now, he says, are these kinds of acts to be condoned? I don't even know what that means, he says, because the lion doesn't understand what morality is. Morality is an invention of human beings. So on an atheistic view, there simply is no transcendent foundation for moral values. They are the socio culturally and personally relative byproducts of human and biological evolution. But I submit that that is wholly implausible in light of our moral experience. We do grasp objective moral values, the common moral beliefs that Dr. Cook referred to in his speech. He said, must we believe in God in order to be moral? Can't we all affirm the common moral principles that we grasp? Of course we can. You don't need to believe in God in order to live a moral life. That is not my argument. He's confusing our knowledge of moral values with the foundation for moral values. I think that all persons can grasp the objective moral values that do do exist. But the question is, on atheism, is there any foundation for the intrinsic value of human beings? And I think we both agree that there isn't one. Fourthly, I argued that the evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus point to a miraculous explanation as the best account of uh, uh, of why the tomb was empty, the appearances occurred, and the disciples came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. And I want to emphasize here that these three facts are not the opinion of conservative scholars or fundamentalist scholars. These represent the wide, mainstream opinion of New Testament historians today. And I can't think of any better explanation for them than the one that the original disciples gave, namely, God raised Jesus from the dead. And that entails that God exists. Finally, I mentioned the immediate experience of God. I think that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments. Uh, (laughs) Uh (laughs) All right. And unless Dr. Cook can give me some arguments for atheism, why should I deny what is real in my experience? Why should I regard my experience of God as delusory in the absence of some good argument for atheism? So until and unless he gives us such an argument, I think we're rational to stick with belief in God. Here's where it becomes this sort
1: of rather tiresome he said, she said squabble that I mentioned at the beginning of my address. I was hoping to avoid this sort of uh, thing. I'd much rather we go straight on to questions now. Uh, I'm just going to end up repeating what I said before. I'm not interested in whether... I mean, I'm not here to persuade Dr. Craig to become an atheist. I'm not here to persuade any of the theists in this room to become an atheist. I'm here because I'm not an evangelist. I'm here because I want to give a reasonable, non-judgmental, and civilized account of how you live a moral life without God. And what I tried to do in my address was to do that. Now... I'm not a cosmologist, neither is Dr. Craig, and I'm not going to start talking about the creation of the universe. I don't know. <laughs> no. Let's start being honest about the limits of our knowledge. My limits, The limits of my knowledge are very great indeed. It seems to me that this is not uncontroversial, however, to, to assert, as Dr. Craig does, that the universe has to have a cause. I'm not going to say anything more than that beyond saying it doesn't seem to me to be just as straightforward as he maintains. But the other point is that, of course, as goes back to, to Hugh and people, that even if he, the creator God, such as Dr. Craig has posited, is alive and well, as he's asserted, we've got no indication whatsoever that that's the Christian God. It could be any one of the other gods from my encyclopedia. It could be the one on page 117. So we've got no account that the Christian God is the one that's being recommended here. He talks about this the consensus of scholarship with respect to Jesus. Well, we're certainly, obviously, reading different accounts. I mean the consensus of scholarship as far as I'm concerned is that Jesus is a was a Jew. Jesus as a Jew had no intention of founding a new religion. He spoke to, as the New Testament says, the lost sheep of the house of Israel only. He was not interested. Paul is the founder of Christianity, not Jesus. Jesus was an es- eschatological prophet, an exorcist. That's the, the consensus of Jesus, as I understand it, from people like Geyser, Verhams. Uh, Dr. Craig mentioned Gerd Ludemann. I was surprised to hear his name mentioned. Gerd Ludemann is, is an atheist and has argued in his more recent books, such as I am I'm arguing with respect to Jesus. He was thrown out of his um, office in Germany, his academic position, because of his beliefs. No, there's no foundation to to ethics. Our ethics grow and develop evolutionarily by trial and error. Reciprocal altruism is what the evolutionary psychologists talk about when uh, the caveman gets a bit of pterodactyl bone and shares a bit of it with Slug in the cave next door in the hope that next week if Ugg doesn't get a bone Slug will reciprocate and give him a bit if he finds that Slug doesn't reciprocate he thinks well not cooperating with him I'll get a thug on this side and try we learn to cooperate Evolutionary thinking is as much about cooperation as it is competition. That was reciprocal altruism. We learn to reciprocate. In moral language, that became the golden rule. This is why the golden rule is ubiquitous across the cultures. I'm not going to say any more because it's just going to be repeating what I'm saying. I don't want to engage too much in a he said, she said, small. Oh,
3: thank you.
2: Now, according to the established plan, Dr. Craig now has a further rebuttal for up to eight (laughs) weeks. Well, I don't find debates boring. I I think it's very exciting to have the exchange of ideas and uh, repartee and and rebuttal. And I was disappointed that Dr. Cook did not choose to re-defend any of his uh, points concerning atheism uh, with respect to my first contention that, if, uh, that rather there are no good reasons to think that atheism is true. And therefore, I think we've seen nothing on the atheist side of the scale tonight to make us think that belief in God is a delusion, that it is a false belief. What about the arguments, then, that I offered for the existence of a creator and designer of the universe who is the locus of goodness? First, my argument from the origin of the universe. Here. Dr. Cook takes the astonishing position that the universe doesn't need a cause, that something can come into being out of nothing. Now, I submit to you that that takes more faith to believe in than to believe in God. Kai Nielsen, whom he quoted as an atheist philosopher, and Nielsen says this, suppose you suddenly hear a loud bang, and you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, nothing. (laughs) It just happened. Nielsen says, you wouldn't accept that. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. Now, what's true of the little bang is also true of the big bang as well. There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. To think that things can pop into existence uncaused out of nothing is worse than magic. But Dr. Cook says, why I think it's the Christian God. I'm not claiming with this argument that it is the Christian God. This argument gives us a creator of the universe. And this is consistent with uh, Islam, with Judaism, with Christianity, with Deism, with certain theistic forms of Hinduism. So my case is a cumulative one. What this does, however, do is to narrow the focus to the world's great monotheisms that believe in a transcendent personal creator of the universe. And therefore, this is an important first plank in our case. Second, I argue that God is the best explanation of the fine tuning of the universe for intelligent life. And there's been no response to this argument in tonight's debate. This is an argument that is very much in the press today, uh, very much a matter of discussion among physicists and cosmologists. And I think that the best explanation is that there, the universe appears to be fine-tuned for the uh, existence of life, because it is fine-tuned for the existence of life by a transcendent designer of the laws of nature. Thirdly, the moral argument for God's existence. Again, the Dr. Cook seems to agree with my first premise, that if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. He says, Moral values are just cases of reciprocal altruism. Now, that's a fancy way of saying, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And this type of altruistic behavior is exhibited in the animal kingdom. In a troop of baboons, for example, uh, they exhibit altruistic behavior because natural selection has determined that this is advantageous in the struggle for survival. The species will survive more effectively if altruistic behavior is selected for by natural selection. So this, again, just underlines the fact that human morality is nothing more than a sociobiological spin-off if there is no God. Steven Pinker of Harvard University in an article in January of this year writes, the scientific outlook has taught us that some parts of our subjective experience are products of our biological makeup and have no objective counterpart in the world the tastiness of fruit and the foulness of carrion, the scariness of heights and the prettiness of flowers are features of our common nervous system, and if our species had evolved in a different ecosystem, or if we were missing a few genes, our reactions could go the other way. Now if the distinction between right and wrong is also a product of brain wiring, why should we believe it is any more real? And if it is just a collective hallucination, how could we argue that evils like genocide and slavery are wrong for everyone rather than just distasteful to us? And this is the horror, frankly, of an atheistic world. It becomes, as Nietzsche saw, a morally indifferent, morally neutral universe in which all things are permitted. There is no objective right and wrong, no objective good and evil, uh, with all of the uh, deleterious consequences of that. And I think that in our moral experience, we do apprehend objective moral values. And if you agree with me that, for example, torturing a child is wrong, objectively wrong, then I think you will agree with me that God exists. (laughs) Because it follows logically from the two premises. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values exist. It follows logically and inescapably that God exists. What about the argument for the resurrection of Jesus? He rightly says that Jesus was a Jew, and I'm glad to hear him affirm the Jewishness of Jesus. (laughs) Oddly, he cites uh, Geza Vermesh uh, on on Jesus. What he didn't realize is that Geza Vermesh, a Jewish scholar, affirms the historicity of the empty tomb of Jesus. Vermesh uh, recognizes the facts that I talked about tonight. Similarly, Lüdemann, he's quite right, is an atheist. And that's why for those of you who know the literature will know that the people I'm quoting in support of my case are not people on my side. I quote people on the other side so as to not be accused of stacking the debt. And Ludemann, whom I quoted, agrees that the disciples in groups and individuals did experience these post-mortem appearances of Jesus. He says, this is historically certain. The question then is, how you best explain it? And I've debated with Ludemann on this. We've, we've published a book together on this. And I don't know of any better explanation than the one that the disciples gave, that uh, God raised Jesus from the dead. I would point out, in support of my contention that this is the consensus, uh, the broad consensus of scholarship, that in the uh, general dialogue uh, from uh, two years ago, um, there was a bibliographical article that surveyed 1,400 articles over the last 25 years on the resurrection of Jesus. And it showed that 75% of scholars writing on the subject agree on the historicity of Jesus' empty tomb, and there is near universal agreement on the postmortem appearances and the origin of the disciples' uh, belief in Jesus' resurrection. So the only question is, how do you best explain these? Finally, the immediate experience of God, again, has been yet to be addressed in tonight's debate. God is real to me. I, I experience God as a personal reality in my life. In the absence of some good argument for atheism, why should I regard my experience as delusory? Am I not within my rational rights to believe in God on the basis of my experience, just as I am in my rational rights to believe in the reality of the external world, or the reality of the past, on the basis of my experience of those realities? So I think we've got five good arguments for the existence of God. No compelling arguments to show that belief in God is false, and therefore I think we have good grounds for thinking that God exists.
1: I'm very, very glad that Dr. Craig has a religious experience of God. I am. I'm very glad. And I have no intention or desire or interest in any way to call that into question or to say that it shouldn't be a reality for him. This is a point I don't think he's he's grasping. This is one of the reasons why I've been arguing using Christian scholars. It's interesting, Dr. Craig's been arguing with all the atheists, and I've been arguing with the Christians. Why, why have I been arguing using the Christian scholars? It's not an, an argument of, for authority. If it is, then his account using the atheists is presumably the same thing. I'm, use, I'm quoting the other Christians to, simply to show that Dr. Craig's notion of God is not the only job in town and that most of the prominent, uh, highly respected Christian theologians of the 20th century realized that you can't look towards some account of the universe and say, well, this is how God did it all. This is what they understood. This was what people like Schweitzer, and, and Kung and the others understood that God is is a personal experience and it's got to be understood in those terms rather than throwing out some projection of God onto the universe and saying my projection of God onto the universe is the true one I'm sorry that it doesn't wash it doesn't wash it's got moral connotations of intolerance and absolutism. And all the best of the 20th century theologians were anxious um, um, above all things about the consequences of intolerance and absolutism. Albert Schweitzer moved away from the dogmatic prescription of Christian dogma and talked about the reverence for life. And this was without any respect, any regard to Christian dogma. And, unlike other people, this wasn't just a pious slogan. As you know, he went out and lived in Africa and worked among African people. I'm not in the slightest bit interested in debating questions about us, about which I am not qualified to speak, about how the universe began. All I'm saying to you any legitimate ways that Christian people can look at God that is more inclusive that is less dominated by dogma and is less open to the sorts of abuses and intolerances that a great deal of evangelical Christianity is subject to those are the only points that I am trying to make and the only point that to me seems important to make and that's why we need to be working together to look at things and to look at the issues that matter, rather than essentially trivial ones about the existence of God. Through
0: the debate, each speaker will have up to five minutes for a
2: summation. In my final round, I would like to try to draw together some of the threads of the debate to see if we can come to any conclusions. Have we seen tonight any good reason to think that belief in God is false. I don't think so. In the last speech, again, we simply heard the assertion that belief in God leads to intolerance and absolutism. But I don't think that that's, even if it were true, relevant to the truth of whether or not God exists. You cannot judge the truth of a view by looking at its social consequences. But in any case, this is certainly not true for anyone who follows the views of Jesus of Nazareth. No one can accuse Jesus of Nazareth of intolerance and bigotry. This is a man who taught his followers to turn the other cheek, to pray for those who persecute them and despitefully use them, who taught us to love not merely our neighbors but our enemies. And if the Christian church has failed very often and frequently to follow the ethics of Jesus, that is our failing rather than his and therefore does nothing to suggest that what he taught uh, about God is in any way false or untrue. So I don't think we've heard any good reason to think that atheism is true tonight. What about the arguments for the existence of God? Here, (laughs) Dr. Cook emphasizes that my notion of God is not the only game in town, that there are theologians who don't agree with me on the worth of natural theology, that is, arguments for God's existence. Well, of course that's true. I I in no way suggested that my views are uh, universally held, but you can't use that sort of argument to refute arguments that have specific premises in them leading to a conclusion. The only way you can refute an argument like that is either by showing that there is an invalid inference, that that it's illogical, and none of them commit logical fallacies, I can assure you. The only other way then is to suggest that one of the premises is false. And apart from that, you cannot avoid the conclusion. So you have to either show me the invalidity of my argument or tell me which premise is false. And until you do that, I think we have good grounds for believing in God's existence, and moreover, I suggested that in contrast to earlier scholars like Schweitzer who wrote around 1910, Bonhoeffer, uh, even Kuhn, that uh, there are quite a good number of philosophers today who think that the project of natural theology is very viable and who have defended arguments such as the ones that I've been giving. Well, what about these arguments? The argument from the origin of the universe has yet to be refuted in tonight's debate. I have made a study of cosmology. I did my doctoral work in uh, Birmingham on this subject and I I quoted uh, scholars such as Vilenkin, Borg, Guth, and others in support of these these, uh, premises. So I think it's a good argument. Same with the fine-tuning argument. Uh, If you're going to contend that God doesn't exist, then you need to inform yourself about these arguments so as to be able to handle them. The moral argument, we agree, I think, that in the absence of God, there really are no objective moral values. The question is, do you believe there are such things as objective moral values? Do you really think that torturing a child is wrong, that loving a child is not morally indifferent? And if you do, then I think you're committed to God's existence given the truth of the first premise that we both agree on. The resurrection of Jesus, Uh, again, I I answered his arguments there. And finally, the immediate experience of God. He says, I'm not denying your immediate experience, but then in the next breath he turns around and says, it's a projection on the universe. But how do you know it's a projection unless you have some good argument for atheism? In the absence of an argument for atheism, why think the experience is delusory? I myself wasn't raised in a Christian home or even a church-going family. But when I became a teenager and began to ask the big questions in life, who am I, why am I here, where am I going, someone shared with me the love of God and the gospel of Christ. And as I read the New Testament, I was absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. His teachings had a a ring of wisdom about them, a ring of truth that I'd never encountered before, and there was an authenticity about his life that I couldn't deny. And after about six months, I yielded my life to Christ in faith and became a Christian, and it turned my life completely upside down. So if you ask me why I believe in God, sure, I could point to the arguments, but I would also point to the immediate reality of God in my own life. And until I'm given some good reason to think that I'm deluded, I think I'm perfectly within my rational rights in believing in the God of biblical theism.
1: If I may indulge in a metaphor, (laughs) Dr. Craig has constructed a resplendent golden palace in the tide lagoon of our ignorance. I am not a cosmologist, and it is ill advised, to say the least, to build resplendent palaces on shifting sands. 400 years ago, it was quite uncontroversial to believe that the earth was the center of the universe. Those few who did contest the claim were forced to recant or burnt at the stake. But each attempt by Christian conservatives to try to anchor a God idea in something supposedly objective inevitably slips away on a new tide of learning. Dr. Craig's God idea is in such a position already and acts as a barrier to wiser, more humble notions of God that the great theologians of the 20th century explored. Against this, the atheist is content to live in a state of imperfect knowledge and does not presume to deserve a full explanation and certainly not one that panders to one's anthropocentric conceit as fully as Dr. Craig's God idea does. Atheism, by contrast, is the condition of simply being without an idea of God that isn't just somebody's assertion. On the basis of cosmic humility, we can proceed to learn about how the universe actually works and to find our purpose and our meaning under its vast canopy. This is what I call humanism. The real conversation we should be having, rather than sterile tussles about whether something essentially unknowable exists or not, is how best to alleviate the suffering in the world here and now, and how best we can exercise a responsible stewardship of the planet for future generations. Because whether we like it or not, that is our responsibility and ours alone.
4: very much to our two debaters. Now we come to a question time. Um, uh, I think I've just been to say a few words about how this is going to go. Um,
0: so that we can give as many people as possible the opportunity to ask a question, I would be grateful um, if you would confine yourself to asking a question rather than making a long
4: speech. <laughs> if you're going on for too long, I will retaliate. rather rude noise, with this plastic. Noise.
0: I would also be grateful if you would um, address your question um, either to Dr. Craig or to Dr. Cook, and we'll try and take questions in such a way that um, we have even spread questions. And after uh, the person who addressed your question has spoken, um, we will give the other debater a chance to add a comment if he wishes to do so. So I see a gentleman here who is very eager.
3: <coughs>
0: are you aware that in the Chinese language, there's no word for God. Now, In
1: the Chinese, in the Chinese system, there was a, a thriving civilization 5,000 years ago, when our ancestors were swinging in the trees.
3: In all those years,
1: the Chinese have never thought necessary to, to believe in a God.
2: Would you feel a comment? Yes, I've had the privilege of participating in conferences in China with uh, Chinese philosophers at Peking University and Fudan University in Shanghai. And there's quite a, a remarkable interest among Chinese philosophers in uh, Christian philosophy today and in Christian theism. And uh, what they shared with me is that in Chinese, that you do have the word Tian. The, for, for example, we get the word Tiananmen Square from that. This is a, a word that means heaven. And in Confucianism, refers to A sort of moral, absolute, that exists in a kind of transcendent way. And I think that this is a kind of amorphous God concept that plays much the same role uh, as God in Western thought. So I do think there is a sort of uh, amorphous or or vague grasp of of, uh, such a transcendent concept. And many of these Chinese philosophers today.
0: Excuse me. Um, there's about 70% of the people in
2: other lecture here,
0: Can you come and use the microphone? They're all going
2: oh, to pull back. On. I, I thought oh, we mic okay. on our lapel. Oh, oh, right. For the question, too. Okay. okay. Questions as well.
4: Come
2: oh, here. Repeat
4: we'll the questions
2: when you're up. Yes. All right. This was a question about um, whether
4: there was a concept of God in Chinese. Yes. So. Um, well.
2: Maybe if you could just agree yep, yep. <laughs> Just very briefly, as I say, in the Chinese language, you do have the word Tian, such as appears in Tiananmen Square, gate of heaven. And this concept of heaven does play uh, a sort of God role as uh, a transcendent uh, moral absolute in Confucian thought. And uh, therefore, I think, it does show that there is some sort of intuitive grasp of, of a God concept, even in Chinese.
1: So you wish to the Chinese do not have an idea of God in anything like the Christian sense at all, in the sense of a God who intervenes in our life. Confucius was quite clear about this, that the beginning of wisdom is establishing a distance from that sort of spirit idea. Confucianism is a humanistic system of belief that is quite uh, agnostic with respect to God and any Christian
4: in a sense. So. Do we have a question now for uh, Dr. Cook? Yes, Uh, at the back.
3: (coughs) Uh, My question
4: is You spoke in your summation of finding a purpose and meaning of life under this canopy of life. What is the purpose and meaning under your view of life? Okay, so the question to Dr. Cook is uh, He spoke of um, purpose or meaning, finding purpose or meaning in life and doing so without God. Uh, what in his understanding
1: is that uh, well it's very simple really it's to be able to be loved to be a good enough person to justify somebody's love and to be able to reciprocate that love by being able to give love to a few people and among a broader people a range of people to have friends to be respected and valued as a friend and among broad a range of people again, in order to help and assist other people in the here and now to live a better life.
2: I think this is a profound question that we all ask about the meaning and purpose in life. And I would say on an atheistic view, there is no objective purpose in life. There is no reason for which we exist. Death marks the end of all life we will ever know. And indeed, the entire universe is doomed to destruction in the heat death of the universe. There will be no light. There will be no heat. There will be no life. Just the endless carcasses of dead stars and galaxies expanding into the infinite blackness. So that on an atheistic view, there is no purpose. There is no objective meaning. And there are no moral values. Love. Is merely an electrochemical reaction in uh, the burning of our nervous system. Richard Dawkins has said something uh, like this Dawkins says, We are possibly the only planet in the universe in which complex chunks of matter run, pursue others, prey upon others, and some have even Become so complex as to think, feel, and fall in love with other complex chunks of matter. (laughs) (laughs) That's all love is on on an atheistic view. Just an electrochemical reaction determined by the brain. It has no moral or ethical significance at all.
1: Yes, this is with respect to the fine tuning argument. Um, And I'd like to put a question to you. What is the probability that I am sitting behind a person with the Russian word dom written on the back of their shirt? Is it high or low? What is the probability okay, that I'm sitting behind a person uh, with the Russian? I a think I have, I have
4: to repeat So <laughs> <I was actually laughs> this, this is a question that relates to the fine tune, the use of the fine-tuning argument in uh, Dr. Craig's presentation. Um, And Robert would would like to answer the question, and no doubt there'll have to be a follow-up to this. Um, What is the probability that I am uh, sitting in front of a person who has the Russian word Dom on the back of his jacket? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh,
2: (laughs) Yes, clearly those probabilities are are virtually infinitesimal. It's it's very, very insignificant. But it's important to understand that this argument that I gave from fine-tuning is not just based on improbability. It is based upon high probability plus an independently given pattern that exists. So for example, uh, in in dealing uh, a hand of cards, a playing bridge, any hand that's dealt is equally improbable, right? Uh, So a perfect bridge hand is equally improbable with a haphazard hand. Nevertheless, if you were playing bridge, and every time you dealt, you arrived with a perfect bridge hand, your opponents would uh, obviously suspect that this is a result of design, not simply haphazard chance. (laughs) What is the difference? The difference is that in the one case, you have not simply high probability, but you also have an independently given pattern. And it's this marriage, I think, that helps to tip us off to uh, design. It is, um, it is complexity, not just improbability, Is complexity, which is more than just uh, random improbability.
1: Yes, but in response, the complexity itself is even more improbable, yet nonetheless it's actual that I'm behind a person and the situation I've described is highly improbable, but it is actual.
4: Okay, right. So, so <laughs> the point that Dr. Cogg to make was the, uh the situation that he's described is actual, even though one would have to concede that it was highly improbable. Um, do you want to? No. <laughs> in particular, in a way, it's very much amongst professional philosophers in this one. Okay, now um, a question for uh, Dr.
2: Could I use the microphone, or should uh, I? guess uh, that would be a great pleasure. <laughs> <keyword. laughs> um, okay, Bill, um, I just wanted to ask you, and forgive me for the simplicity of the question, but you mentioned about loving one another, and as fellow mankind and just human beings, we have all um, fallen short in, in showing love for one another in uh, many different ways, in acts, and, and also much in our thoughts. And uh, the Bible says that God sent Jesus into the world, and that he poured out his blood for our sin. And uh, my question is, how shall we escape if we reject so great a salvation as that?
3: Um, where
1: does one start? (laughs) It requires one to believe that that's what the case of Jesus is. But scholarship, as I understand it, doesn't look at it in that way. The the Gospels are not historical accounts. They are called pericopes. They They are designed to be read in public. They were written decades after Jesus' death, and each one the mythological accretions in them grows. From Mark the earliest, where Jesus is born and has brothers and sisters, to Matthew and Luke, where he has a virgin birth, to John, where is the word made flesh. They get progressively more mythological as they go on. And Rabbi Yeshua, to use his proper title and proper name, gets transmogrified into something he wouldn't have understood or recognized, something called Jesus Christ. It's a different thing with what happened, what the Christians did to Rabbi Yeshua over that century and a half of turning him around and and throttling the essential Jewishness out of him in order to make the very anti-Semitic arguments that are in the New Testament, as in John 8:44, when Jesus apparently says to the Jews, you have the devil for your 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 father or brother, whatever it is. And you can do no good because there is no good in you. The New Testament is a... There's a lot of poisonous anti-Semitic venom in the New Testament. So far from seeing love and all of these things that you and Dr. Craig have asserted, the historians see a document that gets progressively more anti-Semitic. So in terms of loving people, this has to be done against, and in spite of, the hatred of the New Testament rather than the conflict.
2: I think that shows a misunderstanding of the New Testament. Uh, the the <laughs> polemicizing that goes on in the Gospel of John against the Jews. You must remember that this is taking place among Jews. The the earliest Christians were Jews, and John was a Jew, and and Jesus was a Jew. So this is very typical sort of family squabble that you can show in other Jewish writings, where they uh, argue with each other and debate with each other in this way. This is not anti-Semitism in the modern sense that you have exhibited, say, in National Socialist Germany or or, uh, anti-Semitic societies of that nature. And as for Jesus becoming the Christ, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's the Greek word for Messiah. And I think that there are very good grounds for thinking that Jesus of Nazareth thought that he was the Jewish Messiah. In fact, I was talking to Carol Ludemann at the Society of Biblical Literature a couple of years ago, and Ludemann said to me, I don't see how you can explain the evidence any other way than that Jesus of Nazareth thought that he was the Jewish Messiah. He claimed to be the unique Son of God and the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel, the prophet in the seventh chapter of of his prophecy. He rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey uh, to herald herald, uh, from the crowds of the kingdom of God coming in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Now, he may have been deluded. You can say that he was out of his mind, but it was very clear that he was deliberately claiming to be the long-promised Jewish Messiah. If you're interested in learning more about this, take a look at my book, Reasonable Faith. It has a chapter on the self-understanding of Jesus that deals with the current uh, state of New Testament scholarship on this issue. Uh, that was a
3: question for Dr. So, uh, Dr. Craig. right speak up loudly. Uh, But then people in the other rooms will not be able (laughs) to (laughs) see him.
4: Another professor of philosophy is not going to trust me
3: to say (laughs) say what he means. uh, Uh, A question for Dr. Craig pertaining to his argument
0: on the objectivity of moral values. Now, we need to know exactly what he means by objective moral values, and I would like to cite, let's say, just three instances of what I would take to be objective moral values, if there are any such. One, thou shalt not, or if you like, it is morally wrong to wantonly slaughter innocent people. Two, it is morally wrong to order others to wantonly slaughter innocent people. And I'll take the third one of his own choosing. It is morally wrong to torture innocent children or innocent people. Okay? I have argued in a paper published in Farsi, among other languages, titled, A Moral Argument for Atheism, that if any of those three Principles that I've just enunciated are indeed objective moral
3: principles, then, if objective moral values exist, God does not exist because he violates
0: all three. And I'll give Dr. Crane chapter and verse for each if he so desires. Okay, thank you.
2: Great. Dr. Bradley is an esteemed philosopher that I first met in Canada, so uh, he could well be a participant in tonight's debate. Uh, I think that although these are uh, objective moral values for human beings, which are in fact the result of God's uh, issuing commandments of this sort, that God himself doesn't have moral duties because he doesn't issue commands to himself. I think our moral obligations are constituted by God's commands. So, For example, it would be wrong for Ray Bradley to leap from his seat and plunge a knife into my heart and kill me. This would be wrong. But if God wants to strike me dead right now, that's his prerogative. God is the author and giver of life, and he is under no moral obligation whatsoever to prolong my life for one second further. I exist simply by his grace and his pleasure. Now, I would agree that God would not order others to wantonly slaughter innocent people, but I don't think that the chapters and verses you would give about probably the conquest of Canaan in the Old Testament is a matter of wanton slaughter. I think that there uh, it represented God's judgment upon those nations in the same way that Israel herself was later judged by God when the Babylonian and Assyrian armies swept in and and conquered Israel. Um, So Oh, one last thing I would want to say about that, too, I think raise this, is that this isn't really an argument against theism or, or an argument for atheism. This is an argument against biblical infallibility. It's to say that these stories in the Bible about the Canaanite conquest cannot be true of God. And therefore, the conclusion would be either these are legends about the founding of Israel that never happened, or else Israel carried away by Fervent nationalism thought God was on their side and did things that God couldn't have commanded. Now I don't, in fact, think that's true. But what I am suggesting is that even if your argument goes through, it doesn't prove atheism. It just would at least prove uh, or disprove biblical infallibility. Can I come back? <coughs> well, it's so up to Yes, sure I
0: think we will. Lie. Just one come back. <laughs> As you know. Very well, Bill, having debated the question, Can a Loving God Send People to Hell? with me in 1994, a transcript of which, by the way, is available on the website, uh, reasonfaith.org. Yes?
2: (laughs) It's my website, so.
0: (laughs) The issue that (laughs) exercised me in that debate had to do with God sending people to hell. And a hell, furthermore, in which, according
3: to the book of Revelation, all whose names were not written in the book of life will be tortured in the lake of brimstone
0: and sulfur, and the smoke of their torment will ascend forever and ever with divine lookers on namely, the Lamb, the person of Jesus. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth for ever and ever. Jesus, who is purported to be the exemplar of all that is moral, God is love and all that jazz, (laughs) is the person to whom we owe the doctrine of a fiery hell. There are other concepts of hell, but the doctrine of a fiery hell is that of Jesus. In the book of Matthew alone, there are 13 passages in which he speaks of... (laughs) 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 ...in which he speaks of a fiery hell. Um, Now, if that doesn't count as torture, I don't know what does. There is no greater evil in my book than that of torture of innocent people for the simple sin of non-belief.
2: Well, of course, on the Christian view, these aren't innocent people. Uh, so that it's, that's uh, neither here nor there. Uh, I would say, moreover, that the essence of hell is separation from God. And the Bible uses various metaphorical images, like fire and brimstone, or the worm does not die, uh, and and the outer darkness, and so forth. Um, But the essence of what's expressed here is separation from God. And the Bible is very clear that God doesn't want anybody to be separated from him forever. The Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It says, God's desire is that all persons should be saved, and come to a knowledge of the truth. And he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked uh, whatsoever. That's in the book of Ezekiel. So the only reason that a person would go to hell is not because God sends him there. It's because that person irrevocably separates himself from God forever. This person separates himself from God by resisting God's every effort and will and grace to save him, and God mourns their loss.
1: Can I just make one note that at times when it suits Dr. Craig to talk about um, metaphorical or allegorical understandings of the Bible, he's happy to do that. But at other times, when we're going to be very firm and proving and literalistic, we're happy to do that as well. This is a problem with this slippery approach to understanding the Bible that shows, I think, a lack of understanding about how the Bible was written and why it was written, which is why I quoted Dean Randerson saying that it can't be used as an all-purpose car manual. It needs to be used in a way, understanding more understanding of the terms in which it was written, which gets us out of the slippery usage that we get now where we've worked from literal interpretation when it suits, to metaphorical interpretation when that suits.
4: Question for Dr. Cook. I'm uh, no, sorry, I think I misrational the um, So now um, a, a question for Dr. Craig. So yes. we only ask the uh, question from the middle, not from the side. Ah, sorry. <laughs>
3: Well, uh, I, I realize uh, I, I, I seem to object only
4: male
0: if I'm, I'm I just a oh. little <laughs> 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 but I, I promise that I, I will look steadfastly
4: to the side. I just want to know um, if God um, designed and created the universe. Who designed and created God, or did He just come into existence like a big bag? <laughs>
2: If you remember the premise to my cosmological argument, it was whatever begins to exist has a cause. That is to say, something cannot come into being without any cause. But for something that transcends space and time and exists eternally and never came into being, there wouldn't be any requirement of a cause. This isn't special pleading for God, this is what the atheists typically claim of the universe, that the universe is eternal and uncaused. So we have to get back to some sort of first uncaused cause. Uh, But it, it cannot be, I think, the universe in light of the arguments that I gave for the finitude of the past and the absolute beginning of the universe.
4: questions. Yeah, could you come to the <laughs> Just in response to some of the people uh, back there who uh, point out that there was no concept of God in Chinese culture. As a person from China, I fully understand there was a, there's a whole uh, complete understanding of uh, concept of God. And Dr. Craig said it is cited uh, the word ten, but that's not the only word. Ten refers to high, uh, heaven, but the uh, for God, we have shen, which is exactly uh, in, uh, the equivalent of God in, the, uh, uh, in, uh, in any term. And we have also a more exact term called Shang, Shangdi, which coincides with Hebrew shaddai, uh, phonetically. And also this uh, uh, concept of fairy hell does not only exist in Biblical uh, description, it's also, it also exists in Chinese culture, and also Buddhist culture as well. There's hell, and foreign hell as well. We have 18 levels of hell. <laughs> <laughs> and and where is hell? Well, I, I want to think, if you look around you look into this, uh, this present world, Men, for many people, it is already a hell. That
0: was really a follow-up to a question that we've already uh, <laughs> Do you
4: want to... We are 16 year old Humor us. So, I have a question Yes. Um, you were saying how you don't deny Dr. Craig has had sort of experiences with God and things like that. You're also saying how
1: uh, God is a human invention. Now, I was wondering, how does one explain how how a non-physical human invention could provide such physical realities as miracle healings when specifically me, we specifically prayed for all things yeah. like
4: that. Okay. So the question is, how is something that um, was simply a human invention how would that have the power to respond to prayer through miraculous interventions?
1: Well, I don't think that it does. <laughs> 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 it's very, it's very simple, you know. Lots and lots of people pray for lots and lots of things. There's what worries me about the argument about praying and God's delivered and answered my prayers, is all the countless millions of people who have prayed and God hasn't answered them. Tens of thousands of people on the trains to Auschwitz prayed to God. Right? Now what happened to them? They all got gassed. So I don't think that it's beholden on those people who have had a lucky break, who who have been healed, usually by medicine, conventional medicine, to then ascribe it to something. There's an arrogance about that that worries me. There's a there's a, a heartlessness about it that worries me because it ignores those millions of people who have prayed to God and whose prayers have been unanswered.
2: Well, I think we have to take this question seriously. Uh, the fact that there are really prayers that go unanswered doesn't explain away evidence for, for example, a miraculous event that seems to be plausible. I was speaking last night here in Auckland, and a student from Kenya got up and said to me, in Kenya, in Africa, we are seeing miracles happen all the time. And I've heard reports of these in uh, reports or missions and so forth from Africa and other places. He said, why aren't these talked about in the West? Why aren't you using these as evidence for God's existence? And I have to say, I don't have any first-hand acquaintance with this, but I do think this merits some sort of investigation, that it, there needs to be a sociological study of some sort done of the remarkable claims throughout the world, especially in places like Africa, where Christianity is, uh, is rapidly developing uh, in formerly non-Christian environments. To inquire as to whether or not there really is substantive evidence for for miracle claims. So I don't prejudge the issue. I'd like to see some serious study done of this. <laughs> well, here my response would be similar to the one about all the, the time and the space that there is. For a being who has unlimited resources, this just isn't a problem. On the contrary, <laughs> it, it would show the grace of God, that God would extend his grace even to those who reject uh, miraculous signs of his existence. <laughs>
1: I just wish God would would put His powers to more constructive use than messing around with an obdurate unbeliever. There's three point six million people—I can't remember the figure now—dying, you know, babies dying every second. I would have thought God would have better things to do.
2: For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.